Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with arts advocate, jazz historian, activist, scholar, manager, and producer, Maxine Gordon. We caught up with her from her New York home on December 3rd, 2020, to talk life during this strange COVID-19 world of ours. She was in Kansas City back in mid-March 2020 with Deborah Brown promoting her book, on her legendary late husband, Dexter Gordon, called Sophisticated Giant. I saw her speak at the Johnson County Community College on March 12th, and she autographed a copy of Dexter's book, and it had the date on it. And it would be the last thing this jazz host would do in the old world of ours that is long gone, and this signature now proves to be the most important autograph I will ever fetch. Her story is about getting home, the recovery, how Dexter would have done during the quarantine, and so much more. Please... Enjoy this jazz jam. Hey, it's so nice to talk with you, Maxine. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, i got to tell you, I look back at March 12th right now, and I cannot believe how crystallized that day is in our collective memories. It's amazing. Uh, well, oh, I'm writing a book proposal. And in it, the, you know, unfortunately, they have a section on um a market, what's it called, a promotion. You would think that, the, you know, an outline of the book would be enough, but oh no, they want to know how you're going to market it. So I, I said, well, I went, I've traveled for a year and I did 62,000 miles and I think I know how to promote a book, right? Done on November, I started November 2018, I ended November 2019 until... Um, my friend uh, Deborah Brown in Kansas City said, you never came to Kansas City. No, you have to come in March. And then I went in February to Los Angeles for Dexter's birthday. So then I was I, I started writing about how it continued. And then I was like, oh, my God. And I looked at my calendar and I saw those two days. You know, there were two days in March, right? But the second one was canceled because that's when they locked down the city. And then the other thing was Deborah gave me a check and she paid me. So I was like, oh my God, but I didn't do the gig and she paid me. And she said, well, I mean, you're here to ready to do it. So I'm paying you. And I thought, you know, I should give that money back <laughs> because, right. you know, things are so tough. But anyway, I, she said, no, I'm not taking any money. Anyway, I, so it all came back to me like you, you know, it was like totally remember every moment. And that concert was so great, wasn't it? You know, I didn't make it to the concert because that oh. time I I went to your I went to your speaking engagement that afternoon of the twelfth. Somebody right. got coronavirus on the campus that day, and they closed everything down. So I didn't right. even get clear news whether or not they were going to have the concert or not. So at that point, I didn't even go anywhere. I was on lockdown myself. I think everything was closing oh. down by the thirteenth. But, you know, they they announced that, you know, it was coming and everything, you know, that the university closed down. That's why I didn't do the next gig. I was supposed to do something at the university, I guess, right? But the, the concert went on, and it was packed, even though, you know, they, they had announced it. And, and then she said something like, well, I guess it's the last time we'll see each other for a while, for, you know, for a few weeks. Who knew no idea. I mean, now we're talking December, honey. Uh, what I was supposed to go to a uh, writing fellowship in April, then 
in September to Santa Fe. Of course, everything is like canceled for a year. And now they were saying, we hope you can come in April 2021. I mean, we don't know. So I, I don't like not, you know, being able to plan. And then I went, what happened to me was these friends came to get me April 1st in the car with the mask and the gloves. And they said, well, you can come to Amagansett. It's in the Hamptons for a couple of weeks. Get out of the city. After I, after I did two weeks at home, to Kansas City, right? And so they came and got me so nice. I stayed nine weeks because every week wow. it'd be like, I don't think you should go back to the city, you know. And so I had nine weeks, very nice friends, right? <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I'm I'm keeping up with it. I keep getting CDs in the mail. I got to tell you, every day I took that autograph from the book and I put it in a frame and I have it on my desk and I look, I, I look at that March 12th because when you signed it, I'm thinking this is wonderful. I love this book. It's going to be so nice. And I had no idea. I've gotten when I was a kid, I used to get autographs from baseball players, and I get them here and there from musicians. But I, that will be the most important autograph I ever get in my entire life. March 12, twenty twenty. It just blows me away. <laughs> I saw that, and I sent a sent a copy of that to my editor, and he was like, you know, he said that is anybody who was there on that last day before the lockdown is very lucky. But I, you know, people have been asking me for books, so I went to the bookstore. I uh, McNally Jackson, the bookstore in New York. So and then I date it. And, and autograph it because I thought because of you because before I just signed my name but now I thought well if people are buying gifts right of the book it'd be good if they saw that it was during this time you know Anna, you know. I guess I just kind of wanted to catch up with you about like how you got home like when you realized after the 13th we were in lockdown like how did what was your journey like what were you thinking Kind of now that you look back, how did all of it transpire for you to get back to New York? So Deborah and her husband and the um, tenor player who was in the band, Greg Hardy, he played, oh, he plays great. So when the gig was canceled because the university shut down, I wasn't booked to go back until the day after that, right? So yeah. she said, oh, you know, we're going to a restaurant. We're going out to eat. And, you know, we had no idea. This is before, you know, masks and, you know, how bad it's going to be. When the restaurant was open, some, like, fabulous Kansas City barbecue <laughs> place, right? <laughs> and yeah. so she invited me and my friend Sharon Kay had come with me. She lives in my building. <laughs> so, so basically, you had dinner. And how, how did you actually get back to New York? What was that like? Was because fun. we were all in lockdown. Yeah, and then, no, but then, you know, university shut down, and then we had a ticket back. We got on the plane, and um, Sharon had already had, like, uh, the disinfectant for the hotel room, and, like, we didn't have masks yet, you know, but um, we wiped down. We had these wipes, and we wiped down the tray and our hand. You know, we were doing the hand-washing thing, and... And then, you know, we took a cab and we came home and didn't go out for two weeks. <laughs> you know, it got serious in New York and we have regulations. And, then, you know, I got masks and got toilet paper like everybody else. Stayed in for two weeks. Luckily, you know, we have Whole Foods delivery. 
So yeah. right to the door, right to the door. I live in New, you know, New York is not, you can still get what you need. When, you know, you don't have to get in the car. And then I went away for nine weeks and I went to the Hamptons and then I went to my goddaughter in Cape Cod and basically was away for months. But now I'm back. I'm back in the city. When, when we get back to like life, when musicians get back on stage and the audience gets back, what do you hope we realize about this absence, not only of live music, but gigs that you had when you were in town? You know, what do you hope we all realize about this? Well, first of all, it's a really bad time for the musicians, for the people make their living, you know, playing in public, and for the audience that looks forward to hearing music at least once a week. And, what you know, it's so meaningful to people to hear live music, right? But the musicians, yeah. I mean, economically, you know, this shit, is, they'll never recover. I mean, it's very bad. So, you you know, the jazz standard just closed in New York, right? Yeah. And the, the recovery from musicians will be very hard because the good thing is that it's the first time they got unemployment, at least some of them are being self-employed. You know, but a lot of them got unemployment, you know, helps. And they have to learn how to use the computer, how to Zoom, how to do downloads. Because what's going to happen next is everything's going to be online. It's going to be online. That's it. You know, the streaming, the download. I mean, forget about, like, buying music, right? LP. In Europe, they would put out some Dexter LPs, right? Because they said that market was growing. But, you know, yeah. I mean, the shipping, you know, the, everything is it's a, it's in turmoil. I mean, but, okay, on the positive side, it is the time when people can reflect and like regroup and you know musicians are very good at improvising now the the what one of the most positive things about this um weird surreal moment that we're in is that every saturday at one thirty, barry harris has a class on zoom and uh, you sign up i mean they send you a link every week yes he's doing it and $10, and most of the people, are, you know, it says instrument, but I put listener. And and he does an hour and a half, then he takes a half-hour break, then he does two more hours. And the first hour and a half is piano, and they show, you see him, and then you see the keyboard, and then you see his hands, and he will be played, you know, and I don't, I'm not a musician, so he talks in chords, and what you know, the code of the, you probably know, but, you know, the letters and the numbers, the E-flat, 9th, 11th, and all that. He shows them, and then he picks something to play, either Monk or uh, Charlie Parker or Bud Powell. And then he always says something that you would never hear from anyone else. He was like, I remember this time the Monk played this, and he said this, and... And then he'll say, oh, you know, I want to hear that Charlie Parker solo from Messy Hall. He knows every note. He knows, like, every tune in a way that nobody else. I mean, he's over 90. So I asked him, I said, well, you know, what made you get do this Zoom thing? And he said, well, you know, I can't go anywhere, and people can't travel, so we have to do something. So I thought, well, he, here's a perfect example of improvising with you in your life, right? So then I thought about other musicians. Of course, not everybody is a total genius like Barry Harris, but other musicians who will find ways 
to survive this and either write music, go online, you know, do streaming, get someone to help them? Because I said, Barry, you know how to do that? And he was like, no, I've got people. They're, you know, 20 years old. <laughs> I have students. They know how to do it. So he, I told him, he, it's like, I don't go to church. I go to Barry Harris on Saturdays, right? To be inspired and to learn. And, you know, he always says something. I write it down. He'll say something like about Bud Powell did this, you know, but Bird did this. And, I mean, no, where are we going to learn that? I mean, yeah. um, what I've learned over the weeks with him, because I think he's been doing it 20 weeks, or I forget how, 25 um, you know, you couldn't, you can't learn. I mean, you don't read it in a book because he didn't write a book, and he wouldn't be interviewed for Robin Kelly's uh, Monk book. So the the information, but plus, you know, the way he relates to the students. And he he said to one girl, he said, "Oh, play this," and she played it, and he was like, "Well." That's okay if you're writing an exercise book. He said, but, you know, could you play it slower and could you, like, breathe? You know, I mean, which, it sounds so simple, but I remember Dexter saying, why don't they breathe? You know, they're not breathing. You know, because when Dexter played a ballad, it's a lot of breath, right? Or Ben Webster. So, I mean, he said that to the girl and then she, you know, played it again and listened to what he said, but one of his main things is that the way they teach jazz and jazz studies, he said it's, you know, a very big problem for young musicians. They, they don't get it. He said they're not getting it. So yeah. he said this is not a, you know, symphony where you play it the same way every time. You know, this is music takes heart and thought and study and, you know, he plays over and over and over. He'll play like one chord like again and again and again and, you know, uh, anyway. So that's my inspiration in these difficult moments. Yeah. (laughs) What's yours? What are you doing to survive? Well, I got to tell you, when this started, you know, I was just in shock because I'm a busybody. I do a lot of things. I have a pretty active family and I have a, a 15 and a 14-year-old, and, and we uh-huh. just do a lot of stuff. So I was trying to figure out what we're going to do. School canceled, all of this. My my son's special needs, which he needs school, and it's so important. So there's so many things I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. I ended uh-huh. up doing 300 interviews in three months. I did 100 interviews oh. per month. Wow. And I talked to musicians all over the world. I mean, I was doing phone calls to cats that were on balconies in Spain cheering on the nurses, and it was unreal. Wow. And I was playing these interviews on speaker to my kids and they got to like really hear the love that I have for what I'm doing. And all of these musicians were so optimistic. There was such a level of positivity and optimism and they got that in their bones. I'll never forget those first three months. Um, And I've been doing this ever since. I've been really reaching out. I still get CDs. I I, I haven't, I've done a show consistently since March. I haven't stopped. I've just continued. Yeah. So it's like keeping this going. And I think the thing that I'm getting out of this is jazz musicians are the masters of improv. And Mm -hmm. they always take difficult situations and make it to a creative thing. You know, when Bebop came around, Joe Joe Lovano told me this. Probably I interviewed him around April. And he Uh said, you know, clubs were getting burnt to the ground when John Coltrane made A Love Supreme. And uh-huh. when Miles Davis and all those cats were making bebop, it wasn't because of commercial interest. It was because uh-huh. they felt it. And they were going through extreme racism. 
clubs were uh-huh. going to protest. They were on the heels of the end of a war. And my question to you is this. We're going through a lot of things that are heavy like that. Do you think that we're going to come up with some levels of innovation, new idioms, new ways of looking at jazz? Um, I don't know if we need that. I think we might, <laughs> that you know, new in terms of jazz. I would hope that um, young musicians would take this time and go back and and really listen to the people who created this music early on, like what Joe Lovano does, right? You know, yeah. what he said to you. I mean, uh, you know, listen to... I, I listened... I, I got a great email from uh, Ed Eckstein, who's Billy Eckstein's son, because he read my book, and he said in the email that on Thanksgiving, he read the chapter on the Eckstein band out loud to his children and grandchildren so that they could learn something about their grandfather that they didn't know. Yeah. Right? And I and how much he loved the book. I, and I thought, wow, you know, that is like the greatest review I ever got. <laughs> you know, wow. that it would come from his son. I mean, he didn't have to write to me. Yeah. And then he said, He's giving the book to everybody for Christmas, but the, the um, but but the thing is, so you know, we know the names, but you know, in this time, I would hope the young players would go back before John Coltrane, because you know how the young tenor players they study his solos, you know, they don't go back before, they don't go back early, they don't go to Coleman Hawkins, they don't go to Ben Webster, you know, to listen. Because when I got that email, then I went back to the people who were in the Billy Eckstein band. I mean, you have Art Blakey, Sarah Vaughan. I mean, if you look at the personnel and you start listening to Dizzy and Miles and Dexter, I mean, it's unbelievable. And, you know, they have this body of music and we're not paying attention. So instead of thinking, is it going to develop into something new, you know, it always is transforming, but... I would hope they would go back before John Coltrane. I love that answer, and I've never heard anything like that. And I think about in the annals of our history, those that don't understand history are bound to repeat it. And and, and it's definitely not a good thing, but it's definitely something that's very, very needed and necessary for us to understand where we came from. And there was so much that was going on then. Jazz was the popular music at the time. Right. Um, What... What would Dexter be doing right now? What do you have you thought about what? <laughs> you know, I was thinking about that the other day because uh, he'd be reading, he'd be very happy to not have to go to work and get through his pile of books. That's the other thing that um, Billy Eckstein's son, you know, he'd be a good one to talk to. You know, yeah. for you on the radio, this guy. He said he was in his email. He said. In your book, you said that when you um, when Dexter stopped working, when he took a break before he did Round Midnight, that he start could read the books that were on the table that night table next to the book uh, to the bed, you know, where you pile the books you're reading. Yes. So um, he said, I had a pile of books, and now in the pandemic, he said your book was <laughs> was one of those books, and the, you know, I had given him a copy, I guess. You know, when it came out, so it came out in November 2018, right? Or so in 2019, he said, you know, and I'm working, so I finally got to it. And then, you know, anyway, he loved the book. So that made me think about Dexter. He'd be reading. (laughs) And then, you know, he'd be watching football and, you know, 
when it, waiting for baseball season to begin. And, you know, <clears throat> he wouldn't have a problem. He'd be practicing like he did every day. And, you know, if he was working on his book, because I, I kept thinking, well, now that he this book is out, I wonder what if he'd want to write something else. He always had this... Uh, idea about a screenplay about the Billy Eckstein band. So anyway, yeah. he wouldn't, you know, he would, he would be, he's very, he'd be very good at a time when, you know, you couldn't socialize or travel or play in public. He, he had a, a life, you know, a quiet life. There was a lot of people that I've interviewed too, that are relieved they don't have to travel all the time. Like the slowdown has been something that's been good. So wow. I guess my, my final question to you is this. You know, all of us have these idealized notions of how things are going to turn out, or, or, or we're hopeful that things are going to turn out. What, what's your hope for music returning and life coming back? What are you going to look forward to the most? What are your hopes for all of this getting back to life again? I, what I would hope for is that there be new videos. There'd be, like, more um, music, like in museums, art galleries, other Spaces, not as commercial nonprofit spaces. Um, you know that there be more subsidies, state, federal. You know that it be jazz be considered an art form rather than trying to make it into a commercial entity. And you know, I mean, even what I've noticed with the audience because of the cost of going to the clubs, Dizzy's Club, you know, it's like a $50 minimum or a 35 and then two drinks, you know, that to me affects how the musicians play and, you know, how they're thinking. And so I would hope there would be more of a, a change in that and a, that it, if it could be subsidized and not be because also what happens is, is then you limit, like, the people who can afford to come to the club. So you have, like, upper whatever class that is, you know, people who can afford that, right? So you have mainly white people and, you know, middle-aged people, right? And I would hope there would be more places for young people of color and, you know, that it be free or whatever they can pay. Because I noticed online... Um, some Zoom things and things like um, that I watch, like in the African Diaspora Film Festival and other things from Pittsburgh. Uh, they have City of Asylum. They say pay what you can or zero to $25, right? I mean, that they don't, it's not some $75 or whatever, right? And I thought, well, you know, that's pretty progressive. If you're unemployed and you have no money, you can still watch. So yeah. I would hope that that idea, you know, would continue. And then, you know, we have to think about what Barry's doing, this international online way of people being together and studying together and talking. And, you know, at first I was like, no, I'm not going to Zoom. <laughs> I, I, I'm, don't ask me to do it, right? But then I did an interview with Ricky Riccardi, he's another one you should talk to, from the Louis Armstrong uh, Museum and House. Well, he just wrote a new book, and he's the director of the Louis Armstrong House and Museum. He's a total authority on Louis Armstrong. That's another thing. You know, we could okay. spend this time listening to Louis Armstrong in the lockdown and learning about him. You know, people think they know about him, but when you really listen, oh, my God, this guy is so great. 
Anyway, yeah. Ricky wrote this book, so they asked me, you know, would you read the book and do an interview and on Zoom? And I thought, oh, you know, Zoom. But I, it's him. So I did it. We got so many responses. I had no idea that many people would be listening. It was from uh, Satchmo Fest in New Orleans. He sold a lot of books, and they sent me a check. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I didn't ask for money, you know what I mean? They were like, oh, thank you so much. And they sent me a check. And, and would you come to New Orleans next August and talk to Ricky? So I thought, oh, wait a minute. I have to rethink the Zoom thing. And so I am thinking about doing a Dexter course online next spring. Wonderful. People, people ask me about that. You know, using the technology to do what we can do. Yeah. And then finding other ways to subsidize the music, to me, would be really helpful. Because these yeah. young people have to, you know, Facebook, and they have to do their Instagram, and they have to, like, spend time managing their careers. It takes away from the creative part, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. You know. The whole other element. Well, Maxine, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, your insights have been very refreshing. I really, really appreciate it, Maxine. Thank you very much. Stay Thanks, there Joe. Stay in touch. Okay, bye, Absolutely. honey. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest historians, authors, and players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Maxine for her class, time, and tireless energy to jazz. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Davino in the iTunes Store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com and for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.